Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor of The Economist. In this future-gazing podcast series, we consider provocative prophecies and speculative scenarios to gain a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. This month, we're looking at the future of work and how COVID-19 has been a catalyst for change. We'll be asking, where will companies and workers strike the balance between working in offices and working from home? There's still no substitute for in-person events and communication. That's human nature. We crave that and we still need that. And how might remote working change what people get paid? There is certainly an argument that this will be a kind of interesting leveller, both within countries and between them. The big companies that emerged in the late 19th century created the need for office workers. The office allowed for work to be coordinated via meetings, for orders to be transmitted via written memos, and for the employees to be supervised by managers. But all of this required people to work in close proximity. In recent years, however, technology has made it much easier to work remotely. Meetings can be virtual, memos can be sent by email, and employees can collaborate using online platforms. But most companies didn't get the memo that offices had become a lot less necessary. This year, however, the pandemic has made it crystal clear that a lot of work done in offices can in fact be done just as well, or even better, at home. Since the pandemic began, there was one of the biggest shifts in the world of work that the world has ever seen towards remote working, working from home, teleworking, telecommuting, whatever you call it. And broadly speaking, the sort of giant global experiment in working from home has been pretty successful. Callum Williams is a senior economics writer at The Economist, and he was one of the authors of our recent cover package on the future of work. So what evidence did he find on the question of productivity? Well, what the studies generally tend to do is they're not exactly measuring productivity, but they are measuring what workers do with their time, which is a kind of decent proxy. So, for instance, there's a good study that looks at workers at Microsoft and done by some researchers at Microsoft, which is looking so basically at how workers spend their time under lockdown. And what it finds is that workers are able to spend more time on what they call focus hours. So basically setting aside chunks of time without external distractions to kind of get something done. So I think if you talk to economists about this, they would say there hasn't yet been the definitive study of working from home under lockdown and its effect on productivity. But I mean, certainly self-reported productivity is higher and there are indications that it is higher from some sort of proxy sources as well. Now, your piece mentions this controversial theory that offices make people less productive, which would obviously chime with this idea that working from home makes you more productive. So what is it about working in offices that makes you less productive? So this is one of the great unresolved kind of debates in the, the sort of spatial economics literature, if, if I can call it that, which is it sort of boils down to the question of whether working in an office is good because it promotes collaboration between different people or whether it's bad for productivity because basically offices are quite distracting. And the research on this is kind of interestingly quite sort of indeterminate. There's a study, for instance, that looks at the buildings in, in MIT, which is looking at how many patents and publications are are co-written or written by more than one author in MIT. And you know some of the evidence suggests that being in a kind of really busy building with lots of other people is good for productivity. And then some of the evidence actually suggests the opposite. So in certain circles, the notion that being in a building 
with other people. And the notion that water cooler moments or serendipitous interactions were essential for corporations to do well is actually an assumption that has less evidence than you might think. What about this theory that the switch to working from home has been smoother than some people expected because workers had already accumulated that social capital. They were already working on projects with people they knew from the office. So doing it remotely wasn't that big a leap, but that we will have sort of burnt through that social capital at some point. How could we tell if that was happening? Well, I suppose how you would tell is is ultimately in the sort of output of the firm. You could also tell by people saying that they felt that they were becoming detached from the company. And that, I mean, that is certainly a sentiment that you hear. I mean, I think what's happening right now is in a sense not really representative of, of the potential of working from home because people basically, for good reason, find it quite hard to meet in person and you can't really do get-togethers as you would normally. So I think that the social capital fear that you raise is a valid one. You can't just lift and shift what worked in in-person world to a remote world and expect it to work. Erica Brescia is the chief operating officer of GitHub, a company that provides online tools used by programmers. And those tools are built and maintained by a workforce that is mostly remote. That means GitHub has years of experience in managing remote workers and how things need to be done differently compared with working in an office. I think the key is that you need to take a new approach to things. You need to write a lot more down than you used to. You need to be thoughtful about time zones. You need to think about recording things so people can watch them in their own time. And there's still no substitute for in-person events and communication, right? That's that's human nature. We crave that and we still need that. And so, you know, I think as we look at how work is going to evolve over time, it's really going to be finding the right balance between giving people the flexibility to work where they want and when they want, but also making sure that we provide those opportunities for people to come together and really still feel connected to one another. As well as having in-person meetups every few months, GitHub also arranges team building exercises and social activities that happen online to build connections between its workers. We and other companies do a lot of different things from a virtual perspective, right? We've done everything from scavenger hunts to online happy hours to, uh, you know, pub quizzes and so on and, and found different ways for folks to connect. So we're trying these different ways of helping people to connect. But even that, it's just not the same. And I'm personally convinced it never will be. You're always going to have that need to bring folks together at least some of the time. First person to get their winter jacket, put it on and zip it all the way to the top. It's three place with 27 points was... Team milkshakes, everybody. 27 points. Bow down to the milkshakes. We're not worthy. We run team building activities for companies like Apple, Amazon, Google, also government entities, universities, nonprofits. In 2020, of course, that mostly means virtual team building activities. Michael Alexis is the CEO and founder of teambuilding.com. As its name suggests, it's a training company and it used to offer its services in person. But like many other companies, it's had to move its activities online in response to the pandemic. Everything changed very quickly. At the beginning of the March, we went from having a healthy, thriving, growing business to zero revenue overnight. A lot of the locations that we operated at 
closed down. And a lot of the clients that were otherwise planning travel between offices or group events, of course, stopped planning as well. They were very early on to do that. So we did reinvent quickly. And there's similarities with our in-person events, but all of the ones that we run now are new. Online office games have been built using what we know about team building and getting helping teams work together better and build relationships and combining that with kind of deep research into the different platforms available and how to best use them. For example, on the video calls, we almost always use breakout rooms. It's a feature on Zoom where you can take people from the main call and sort them into smaller groups where they can then function just with four, five, six people. And I expect a lot of people listening to this can relate to that first time you get on a call and there's 30 or 40 people out there. You don't know who's listening. It's a little bit nerve wracking. But within that small group, you can be more comfortable. You can be more confident to share out and then come back to the main room for some more of the games and you've warmed up to it. And is it essentially the same sorts of companies asking for your services or is there suddenly much more demand because people want to build teams online in a way that they didn't before? How have you seen this sort of pattern of demand changing? So with local team building, we were mostly restricted to our major operating cities. We had New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, could name a large American city, and we had some presence there. With virtual team building, it's interesting because now we can reach anybody anywhere, right? As long as they have a stable and reliable internet connection. So we continue to work with the large organizations in those cities. We're all work also working with smaller operations that, you know, maybe it's a small paper printing company. We've worked with government entities, not just in the US, but internationally as well in Europe, uh, in uh, parts of Asia. And those were markets that just weren't accessible to us before, at least not yet. But it's not only that, there's a lot of challenges that come with remote work. When you do it, especially for the first time, it's lonely, it's isolating, 10 times more so during a pandemic. So companies are realizing this. They're realizing that they need to find opportunities for their people to connect and get that face time and bring them together and help them feel that sense of normal in a time that deeply needs it. A shift to doing things remotely changes how people work. But what about the offices they've left behind? What does this mean for commercial real estate? Here's Callum Williams again. None of the research I've read presents a kind of bloodbath scenario where commercial office rents absolutely fall off a cliff and loads of office companies go bust and everything. What they really show is that rents kind of gently decline for a while. Being in an office becomes cheaper than it was. So I think that's quite likely. The historical evidence would suggest that people do like to flee cities during pandemics, often for a long time, but they do hold a kind of irresistible allure for a lot of people. So I certainly wouldn't want to foresee the end of cities. What is happening today is an accelerated version of what was happening pre-COVID. Mark Dixon is the CEO and founder of the International Workplace Group, formerly known as Regis, a big provider of flexible workspaces in countries around the world. So pre-COVID, companies were progressively moving towards a hub-and-spoke, hybrid working model. In a digital world, they realised that they didn't have to bring everyone together into large office buildings and sort of herd them together and see them all. They just didn't need to do that anymore. 
And in fact, it's quite inconvenient bringing the people together and it's expensive. So during COVID, pretty much the entire white collar workforce worldwide has had an induction, a forced induction into working digitally and working either from home or remotely. Now, it's not sustainable because you know individuals working from home for long periods of time becomes a problem. They lose you know, the inspiration they get from working, meeting with colleagues, meeting with third parties. So the future becomes much more of this hybrid model where companies will move towards a more permanent form of what you have today. Now it's been proven that it will work. All this has big implications for offices then, but it doesn't make them obsolete. More people will work close to home and avoid commuting because it just doesn't make any sense anymore. And that cities become, that contract, the office requirement in cities become smaller, um, but they still have very much a very important function in terms of providing the meeting place where these sort of distributed workforces come together. Overall, office demand will go down, and it was already happening. The 6% of space used to be occupied by paper. That's already down to three, and this whole digital transformation will bring that down to one or two. And so, you know, big changes ahead. It's a future of decentralised offices, repurposed office buildings and maybe lower costs for workers who have more flexibility and no longer need to live in an expensive city to be close to their employer. Before the pandemic, cities were getting so expensive that even though city workers commanded a premium because of the cost of living being higher, in many places it wasn't enough to compensate for those living costs. So, for instance, in London, if you look at after housing costs income in London, they've been doing really badly now for quite a long time because the cost of housing is so high. So, you know, it wasn't the case that workers who were coming into London were being paid these absolute ransoms because they had to pay for, you know, high cost of housing. They were actually getting a pretty raw deal. So in terms of what the workers kind of disposable income is at the end of the month, I think this could actually be pretty good for them. Now, what about the impact on pay? Because when a company says that people can work anywhere, people who have been working for that company in a high cost of living city, such as the Bay Area around San Francisco, if they decide they want to move somewhere else, presumably the company can say, well, in that case, we're not going to pay you quite so much. And in fact, we're going to hire a whole load of people from this country over here who seem to have all the skills we want and don't require quite as much money and they can all work for us remotely. So how do you think that will shake out and who could the winners and losers be? Thinking about this in very narrow economic terms, if the hypothetical software engineer for Facebook is as productive as they were working from home, then it shouldn't really matter to Facebook where they're working from. And there's also a question about whether Facebook would have a right to know where that worker is working from. There is certainly an argument that this will be a kind of interesting leveller geographically, both within countries and between them. You know, Facebook's employees are not paid so much simply because they are willing to live in San Francisco. They are paid a lot because they're really good at their job and they will continue to be really good at their job even if they're living in, you know, Utah or somewhere in Texas or or whatever. So I suspect that it won't be quite as levelling as some people expect it to be. Employers are taking different approaches to adjusting pay. Teambuilding.com pays people the same for a particular kind of work, no matter where they live. The way that we have run, and I expect we'll 
continue to run is through standardization, which means for each role and each level of experience within it, we have a pay rate. So our hosts, for example, earn an hourly rate for their time, and they earn that rate whether they're based in uh, New York or San Francisco or London. Some of them are based in smaller cities around the U.S. Some of them are based in Australia, and they all earn the same rate and the same rate in U.S. dollars. So we don't localize it for Canada, Australia, Europe, etc. GitHub, by contrast, like many employers, takes into account where its workers live and adjusts pay accordingly. I do think it's important to have equity in pay. And so if somebody starts out in an expensive area, but then moves to a less expensive area, then like many companies, we would do a market adjustment for that to keep it fair for whatever market the people are moving into, right? You don't want to have this situation where perhaps somebody is hired in a lower cost area and then a quote unquote more expensive employee from San Francisco moves in and then all of a sudden you have this disparity in pay. I think the big thing, which is a conversation that hasn't started yet, is around employment law. Callum Williams again. With the benefit of hindsight, it seems incredibly obvious that the rise of the gig economy would lead to lots of debates around the correct classification of workers. You know, is an Uber driver an employee of Uber? Is he or she self-employed or is he or she somewhere in the middle? Your similar sorts of conversations will start when working from home becomes the norm. So, for instance, in many EU countries, it is the case that there are limits on working time. There's a question about how employers will monitor working time of workers if they're working from home. It's also the case in many countries that employers have to make reasonable adjustments for people in order to perform their job in an office to a decent standard. So, for instance, you know, having lifts rather than just stairs and all that sort of stuff. So you can imagine situations where someone says, I don't have very much money. I live in, a, in an old building. It's the middle of winter and I live in Chicago my company needs to pay for some of my heating or needs to pay for my internet connection or all that kind of stuff. So I think that's something that policymakers need to start thinking about now. It's certainly something that companies are thinking about. Here's Erica Brescia again. Companies are still really understanding, you know, what are our responsibilities to employees? I think, you know, we're all seeing the evolution of gig working too, which I think is another really important trend that's here to stay. People are going to be working in more flexible ways. I think they're going to have more control over their jobs. I think over time, we'll see more job sharing, more, you know, 80% time for 80% pay kind of work. I think folks really are going to be experimenting quite a bit moving forward to figure out what makes the most sense for their business and also their employees. There's no doubt that when we emerge from the crisis of the pandemic, the world of work will look very different. But one silver lining seems likely to be the widespread adoption of new and more flexible working practices. We asked each of our guests to give us their predictions of how things might end up. I think with most companies, what we'll actually see is that folks will come into the office some of the time. Like when we've surveyed our employees who used to be office-based, they appreciate being able to work from home some of the time, but they still want to come in two to four days a week. And I just think we'll see a lot more flexibility around the expectations for people to be in the office. And instead of being in an office because they're told they have to be there, people will come in when their work demands it, right? When it's work that needs to be done with other people. Michael Alexis again. 
So I think there's a lot of exciting opportunities to increase and promote diversity within organizations. A lot of companies and organizations may have limitations based on their location, right? If you are based in, if we said New York City or London, well, you have the local market to hire from and how you hire will depend in some ways on the makeup of that city. Remote work removes those barriers. So you can take your intentions, you can take the best practices, and you can find people anywhere in the world to build a more diverse team. And finally, Mark Dixon. I think the environmental question is massive. So, you know, basically the enormous pressure on the environment through both people commuting and also very inefficient large office buildings. It will be one of the good things that will come from the terrible thing, which is the pandemic. It's a sink or swim moment. And, you know, I think this hybrid working has been absolutely proven. Uh, and now it just needs to find its place. And I think the, the momentum will get behind it. That's all for this edition of The World Ahead. You can listen to and read more of our journalism by subscribing to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer for the best introductory offer. And that link is in the show notes too. I'm Tom Standage in London. This is The Economist. 